Father, ask that we would come uh, close to you. We know that you're always with us, but help, and help us to open our hearts and minds to you just now. And as we consider the creation story in Genesis 1, help us to have a clearer understanding of the light and the darkness. Amen. Okay, this is, it's uh, really interesting to consider the meaning of the words here as the book of Genesis opens up. And we're going to spend a lot more time in the Bible study um, focusing here on these first three chapters. This lecture is really uh, two lectures, so we'll kind of, uh, um, part two will be next time, uh, Genesis 3, and uh, we won't really be able to answer all the questions that I'd hope to um, today, just because there's a lot to talk about here. But as the Bible opens up, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And the words there in Hebrew are tohu and bohu, formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. What I find interesting is uh, just to consider, what does that mean? Formless and void. Darkness. And so we uh, look up these terms in Hebrew and see what they mean. And uh, the term here for formless, so it's translated into English as formless, or tohu in Hebrew, means uh, a worthless thing, a desert, chaos, confusion, empty place, void. Um, does that have meaning that uh, God created in the context of something that would appear to be uh, chaotic? And then for void here, bohu, which means an undistinguishable ruin. Now, there are only two times that tohu and bohu are used together um, here in the entire Old Testament. And so I think it's significant just to uh, consider the context of the other two examples for how these are used. One is in Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah wrote just as the Israelites are going into the Babylonian captivity. Well, the only two tribes left, Judah and Benjamin, going into the uh, Babylonian captivity. And so uh, Jeremiah is describing here a, really an incredibly sad, devastating time. And so these are the words. Enemies are coming from a country far away. Of course, those are the Babylonians. These enemies will shout against the cities of Judah and will surround Jerusalem like men guarding a field because their people have rebelled against the Lord. Judah, you have brought this on yourself by the way you have lived and by the things you have done. Your sin has caused this suffering. Notice, who does the punishing? Your sin has caused this suffering. It has stabbed you through the heart. The Lord says, my people are stupid. They don't know me. And every time we have a chance, we'll highlight this. Remember last time we said eternal life is to know God. And the intimacy, the friendship, the knowledge of God's character that's, that are involved in those words. So when God says, they don't know me, again, this is in the biblical sense. They don't know the truth about God. They don't know God as a friend. There's no relationship. They don't know me. They are like foolish children. They have no understanding. They are experts at doing what is evil, but failure at doing what is good. I looked at the earth, and it was a barren waste, or formless and void, tohu bohu. And at the sky, and there was no light, just like Genesis, where there was chaos, and it was also dark. Same thing is described here. I looked at the mountains, they were shaking, and the hills were rocking back and forth. Were they actually shaking and rocking back and forth? I saw that there were no people. Even the birds had flown away. The fertile land had become a desert. The earth will mourn. The sky will grow dark. Did the sky actually grow dark when the Babylonians captured Jerusalem? Um, I think we, we don't 
for example, the entire book of Revelation is really Old Testament symbolism. And so when we consider hills shaking, the sun growing dark, we really should go back and see how these terms were used in the Old Testament. But the point here is that tohu, bohu, darkness, in this setting is used in the context of a people that don't know God, um, separated from God, sin is rampant, uh, that setting. The one other example is the story of Edom. And this is described in Isaiah, the end of the Edomites. And Isaiah describes it this way, The rivers of Edom will burn into tar, and the soil will turn into sulfur. The whole country will burn like tar. It will burn day and night, and smoke will rise from it forever. Now this is exactly in Revelation where it talks about the smoke that will rise forever and ever. It comes straight from this passage in Isaiah. Again, helpful. Did Edom burn forever and ever? Well, the land will lie waste age after age, and no one will ever travel through it again. Owls and ravens will take over the land, which would suggest it's not burning the whole time. There are owls and ravens that take over the land. The Lord will make it a barren waste. And again, same thing. Tohu, bohu, other translations describe this as chaos and emptiness. And notice, again, as it was before the creation. We'll go back to the chaotic, empty, void, wasteland that it was prior to creation. Okay, interesting, there would seem to be some, um, some important meaning here, besides this just being a, a dark planet here when God created. And so uh, uh, Greg Boyd in his book, uh, God at War, would uh, describe it this way. There are several aspects of the Genesis narrative that indicate that while the creation of Genesis 1 verse 2 and onward is good, God declared it to be good, it is set in the context of a broader environment that is not altogether good. Okay, and just as some further uh, uh, support for this, in this uh, book here called The Persistence of Evil and the Explanation for a Hebrew. What does this mean? Tohu, bohu. And the explanation here is the forces that oppose Yahweh and his acts of creation. The forces of disorder, injustice, affliction, and chaos, which are in the Israelite worldview one. Okay, these words would seem to have a, a spiritual significance. Okay, so we have this formless, void, chaotic situation, and this is associated with darkness. Now, does this mean more than just uh, it was a dark planet? And uh, the Hebrew word here, which I won't try to pronounce, but for darkness literally means misery, destruction, death, ignorance, sorrow, wickedness. And that is known just from looking up how this word is used other places in the Old Testament. Okay, so uh, my wife and I now are reading uh, the Net Bible, which is uh, really an interesting experience. It has over 60,000 translators' notes. And so the opening of Genesis 1 has about one verse. Genesis 1, and then the whole rest of the page is just footnotes. Um, so it's fun to read, and you can look up how the translators struggled with uh, how to translate this. But here was their comment with regards to this word, darkness. The Hebrew word simply means darkness, but in the Bible it has come to symbolize that which opposes God, such as judgment, death, oppression, and the wicked, in general, sin. And so, for example, in 1 Samuel, the same word for darkness, 1 Samuel 2.9, he will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. Again, what would this mean if we're suggesting... Hey, there perhaps was something going on here before the creation of Eden. 
Well, some other clues. We're still here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where we read that God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, why does the earth need to be subdued? Subdued from what? And uh, other translations say to bring it under your control. Okay, was it not under their control when they were created? Again, interesting to see what does this mean to subdue. Elsewhere in uh, the Old Testament, it means to enslave, to conquer, and even to sexually assault. When uh, Haman attacked Esther and the king had said, Are you go even going to rape my wife? And it was the same uh, word here, to subdue. Well, interesting. What might that mean? And then we read on in Genesis 2.15, where the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and guard it. And my understanding as a child was, um, well, um, training vines, pulling up weeds, um, you know, that kind of thing. But um, again, the suggestion here, and, and coming back to Greg Boyd's book on this uh, comment to guard the garden, and he would say this is usually interpreted to mean that Adam was simply to till the garden, as though protecting the garden from weeds was his greatest concern. But in light of the fact that the broader narrative suggests that the ground did not become resistant to Adam or produce things like weeds until after the rebellion, and in the light of the fact that a malevolent serpent appears in the next chapter with the intent of bringing Adam and Eve's paradise to ruin, one could easily argue that Adam's charge to guard the garden concerned more than weeds. He was supposed to protect Eden from malevolent forces represented by the serpent. And so again, uh, even if we leave out everything I've just said, what is this serpent doing in a tree? God creates Eden. Where did the serpent come from? Just that alone would suggest, hey, there's something that is going on before God created Eden. And that chronologically at least, uh, perhaps Genesis 1.1 is not the place to start chronologically to understand what's gone on on our earth. And of course, God had to warn Adam and Eve, you may freely eat the fruit of, ev of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And then, of course, the snake was there, the most cunning, crafty, subtle creature that the Lord God had made. Okay, what's that snake doing there? Okay, should bring to our mind to ask questions. Uh, what, what is that snake all about? And uh, this verse is so critical. Sigvi Tonsted, if you have a chance to take a religion course from him, he's uh, wrote an excellent book um, called Saving God's Reputation, which, believe it or not, is a book about Revelation, the book of Revelation. And uh, he makes a wonderful case that Revelation 12, verse 7, is the central point of the entire book of Revelation, that the chiastic structure and so on, that this is what the entire book revolves around. Okay, which describes this. Then war broke out in heaven. Now when did war break out in heaven? Well, we've got the snake at the tree. Wouldn't that suggest we need to put this all the way back? Michael and his angels fought against the dragon who fought back with his angels. But the dragon was defeated and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. The huge dragon was thrown out. And it's, I just think it's interesting how John wants to make sure we don't miss the identification of this dragon. That ancient serpent. Hey, how many ancient serpents can you think of in the Bible? We're still not sure. Named the devil. Still not sure. Satan. That deceived the whole world. Certainly deceived Adam and Eve. And he was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. Again, when was he thrown down to earth? 
perhaps we need to put this uh, way back and that God was waged in a cosmic conflict prior to the creation of humanity. And we'll talk about this next time, but the war, the, the Greek here for war in heaven, the word is polemos, and which uh, we get the word polemics, which is the art or practice of argumentation. We get the word politics from this. Okay, this war in heaven was not uh, tanks, lightning bolts. Okay, this was a political war. Okay, and we'll discuss next time perhaps what the issues were in this war. But for now, just to say there was a controversy. There was a war that spilled over onto our planet. And I want to uh, just be clear, because some of you may have heard of things known as gap theories or alternate gap theories, and some have suggested that uh, these verses here, formless, void, darkness, describes uh, billions of years of an evolutionary process. Okay, and that's not what I'm saying. Uh, But I think we do need to put the great controversy way, way back. How does God create? Well, I think in Jesus, we see how God creates. Lazarus was dead, three days in the tomb. And um, how do we know he was really dead? This person almost looks like they're plugging their nose. He stinks, right? He was dead. And um, when you, uh, very soon, for second-year students, you get to a pathology of a brain. Uh, after three days, what's left are the neurons and the connections. It's just... I mean, mush, to use something that's not a technical term. Okay, Lazarus was dead. The neurons were destroyed, and so Jesus' act of bringing Lazarus back to life was the same as creating him from the dust, really. Okay, so that's how our God creates. And in fact, again, coming back to the net Bible footnotes, on this word, the day, every, every day ends with, it was evening, morning, the first day, And I like their comment here, that the exegetical evidence suggests the word day in this chapter refers to a literal 24-hour day. This chapter uses day, night, morning, evening, years, and seasons. Consistency would require sorting out how all these terms could be used to express ages. Furthermore, the commandment to keep the Sabbath clearly favors this interpretation. One is to work for six days, then rest on the seventh. Okay, so it would seem that this is how God creates. There's another problem with uh, evolution, um, which uh, we'll come to here in in just a little bit. But we have this contrast here, just in the first two verses of Genesis, between formless, void, darkness, and in this context, God says, let there be light. And if you just look up light and darkness, how they are used in the Bible, um, I had to delete dozens of verses because there just wasn't time to bring them all up. But this symbolism here between one kingdom of darkness and another kingdom of light comes up again and again in the Bible. And so this idea of a cosmic conflict, uh, it's not emphasized very much, but I think we really cannot understand why our world is the way it is unless we incorporate a cosmic conflict. And one thing that's interesting is that this was the dominant Christian view during the early centuries. And uh, we know this for several reasons, but one is a philosopher, well-known philosopher named Celsus, all the way back 175-177 AD, wrote a scathing criticism of the view of Christianity. Okay, and notice how he described the Christians. Their utter stupidity of the Christians can be illustrated in any number of ways, but especially with their misreading of the divine enigmas and their insistence that there exists a being opposed to God, whom they know by the name devil or Satan. And so in Celsus' view, 
It's just ridiculous. You have an all-powerful God. How could an all-powerful God have an enemy? Okay, he'd eliminate him. Okay, ridiculous to have someone opposed to God. He's not all-powerful if he wouldn't just take care of the problem. And he would go on to say, it is blasphemy to say that when the greatest God indeed wishes to confer some benefit upon men, that he has a power which is opposed to him and so is unable to do it. And next time we'll discuss... Uh, why didn't God deal with the situation differently? Why not eliminate Satan? Why not create him? Why create him in the first place? Um, so we'll get into that next time. But it is a very good question. Why did God allow uh, for the existence of Satan? Well, here's why it's important. In uh, in medicine, in fact, what is this, by the way? E. coli. Um, in medicine, when we talk about disease, what's the first step? You've got to make the right diagnosis. If you don't make the right diagnosis, your treatment is not going to make any sense. So imagine here having a topic on, let's say, meningitis. And you learn about headache and fever, all the bad symptoms of meningitis. But you never get around talking to what causes it. You never talk about the bacteria, the viruses, the funguses. You just talk about headache. You can reduce headache by giving Tylenol. Um, you talk about fever and Tylenol again, Motrin. We talk about these kinds of things, but we never get to the source of the problem. All right? The reason the cosmic conflict and talking about Satan is important is it really brings us back to the root of the problem. It gives very important insights and understanding. We try to understand why our world is the way it is. 9-11, children starving. And from Jesus, Jesus himself said, Satan is the prince of this world. Okay, we live in a world that is not like God's kingdom. Okay, there is an enemy. And, uh, but yet, I never once, I heard lots of talk shows back when there was 9-11, and asking the question, where was God? I don't ever recall hearing someone say, you know, it's too bad Adam and Eve handed the keys to planet Earth over to Satan. All right, we don't tend to think about it in that way. Or we talk about what we should do for the problem of world hunger, and we should discuss that more, but don't bring it all the way back to an enemy that started this whole process in the first place. So just, uh, just a few verses on this. In 1 John 3, Jesus, the Son of God, appeared for this very reason, to destroy what the devil had done. Again, to suggest he came... Uh, we tend to just think of everything in terms of personal salvation. Jesus came in the context of this cosmic conflict to destroy the devil. In Hebrews 2.4, Jesus became like them, like humans, shared their human nature. He did this so that through his death, he might destroy the devil. Next time, we'll discuss what in the world does the death of Jesus have to do with destroying the devil. But that's actually where Satan was defeated. And Jesus came as the light of the world, again contrasting light and dark, because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. Again, light and dark, this cosmic conflict uh, that is uh, such a common theme. Again, uh, I think we're not used to thinking of Jesus' life and death uh, in this sense, but remember there was war in heaven. What did Jesus accomplish? Through the Son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe. That is more than just you and I and our planet. The whole universe back to Himself. Okay, there was war in heaven. God made peace through His Son's blood on the cross. And so brought back to Himself all things, again, not just here, both on earth and in heaven. 
Okay, and we'll have to round this out. We need to say much more about it, but just trying to make some claims about this cosmic conflict and that God is involved in this all the way through. So, uh, I'm going to bring up two Old Testament passages that I think are really important in helping us to understand perhaps what happened in the first place. The first one's in Ezekiel 28. Okay, poetically here, describing the king of Tyre, but it becomes pretty clear as we read on, this is not the king of Tyre we're talking about. Son of man, give the prince of Tyre this message from the sovereign Lord. In your great pride you claim, I am a god. I sit on a divine throne in the heart of the sea. Son of man, weep for the king of Tyre. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. You were the perfection of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden. It was the king of Tyre in Eden. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and appointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. Uh, presence of God is always described as a fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And uh, Lucifer, before sin, dwelled in the very presence, very presence of God. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your great wealth filled you with violence and you sinned. So I banished you from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And so just like in Revelation 12, so I threw you to the earth and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. Hey, uh, again, Satan thrown to the earth. And the other Old Testament passage is Isaiah 14. Now this time, king of Babylon. But again, seems to be referring to someone else. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to earth. There it is again, thrown down to the earth. You who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, and notice the aspirations of Satan here, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the Most High. But instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. Everyone there will stare at you and ask, Can this be the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble? Is this the one who destroyed the world and made it into a wasteland? You know, doesn't that sound like the description of our earth before God created? Is this the king who demolished the world's greatest cities and had no mercy on his prisoners? Um, I think both of these are referring to uh, Satan uh, and its interesting origin. Uh, early Christian writer back in the third century uh, wrote that this referred to uh, Lucifer's um, conversion, if you want to call it that, to Satan. So that would seem to be the early Christian view as well. And so the words here, how do, where do we get Lucifer out of this? We just read in Isaiah 14 that this is son of the morning, or literally shining one, or brilliant one. Okay, and in Hebrew, Hillel is the word, and this is usually referred to uh, Venus, which, of course, a star, you can see it during the day, it's so bright. And so, literally here, it is morning star, or light bearer. And we get Lucifer from the Latin. So the Latin uh, translates morning star, or light bearer as Lucifer. And so that's why if you have a King James or a New King James and lots of other translations, it reads, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. 
Okay, but it really is a brilliant star or star of the morning. Okay, so uh, we have this contrast then between light and dark. And we really need to make a lot out of this, I think, because we might think, well, I mean, I can identify Satan. That's uh, Ouija boards and Halloween and stuff like that. But, again, coming back to the Pharisees, we consider these people who kept such a good list, read their Bibles, went to church, paid tithe, did all these good things. And what did Jesus say to them? You are of your father the devil. Okay, so we need to clearly distinguish between the two kingdoms, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. So Jesus would say, kind of in contrast, everything we see in the world, hey, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kingdom. And uh, just coming back to this, where Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world, it's interesting, what did that mean to the people in that time when he said it? Uh, The Greek word here, archon, would to those people mean the highest official in a city or region in the Greco-Roman world. To us, it would kind of be like saying uh, Satan is the president of this world. doesn't sound right, all right, but he really is the ruler of this world. Jesus came to defeat him. Okay, Paul would refer to Satan as the god of this age and the ruler of the kingdoms of the air. And John would say the whole world is under the control of the evil one, And then in Revelation, that Satan leads the whole world astray. So this theme runs all the way uh, through the Bible. And even in the Lord's Prayer, which, um, you know, I've said so many times throughout my life without really thinking about the meaning, but where Jesus would say, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what would this imply? Where is God's will being done? It's being done in heaven. We are to pray that God's will be done on earth. It frequently is not done on earth. But we are to pray that it will. And uh, I like how the Good News Bible translates, instead of just protect us from evil, but keep us safe from the evil one, uh, right there in the Lord's Prayer. And of course, Paul, famous verse here in Ephesians, would describe who our real enemy is. Put on all the armor that God gives you so that you will be able to stand up against the devil's evil tricks. For we are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of the dark age. That's the real enemy. And again, if we go all the way back to the beginning, we see uh, that uh, Satan is the real enemy. And uh, oftentimes Satan is kind of uh, symbolized away as just everything that symbolizes evil. But as we'll discuss next time, there's a real downside to making Satan a symbol. Okay, we need to make him a, a real person. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, you're going to describe the Holocaust and we're going to leave out Hitler. I mean, uh, we've, just, we've got to have understand how this whole thing started in the first place. So what can we say about the contrast between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom? Okay, certainly in the animal world, what do we see? Survival of the fittest, where the stronger hunts, chases, kills, and eats the weaker. Okay, is that a part of God's kingdom? Well, we know that in the future, description of heaven is that wolves and sheep will live together in peace, leopards will lie down with young goats, calves and lion cubs will feed together, and little children will take care of them. Okay, so we see this is not God's ideal and that the whole survival of the fittest, everything we see, is really the uh, satanic intrusion into God's plan. This was not God's plan. And um, 
we see this right away. Next time we'll talk about the tree and what really happened there. But we see the survival of the fittest mentality begin immediately as Adam and Eve sinned. Because what did Adam say? Well, the woman that you put here with me gave me the fruit and I ate it. Okay, he's blaming her, putting her down. Okay, that is really survival of the fittest, in a sense. And he's almost blaming God, isn't, isn't he? The woman that you put here, it's kind of your fault, God. And then Eve would say, well, the snake who you made, God, why'd you make him in the first place? Uh, he tricked me into eating it. Okay, right away we see kind of this mentality. Yes, yeah, all the animals that would seem armed and fit for killing. Well, uh, I'm not proposing that I understand the mechanism, uh, but... Uh, I think we at least are invited to understand this is not the ideal. And, and actually, just in answer to your question, if we want to see the ideal, uh, Jesus tells us the ideal, which is, if one of you wants to be first, you must be the slave of others, like the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve. Um, God's kingdom, as I understand it, is based on the stronger serving and giving for the weaker. And we see that in Jesus, who even laid down his life. Jesus is the strongest laid down his life for the weaker. And so I don't know how the teeth got there. I mean, I have some ideas, but I, it's maybe dangerous to speculate on, uh, on all of that. But all I can say is Genesis 1, 1, and 2, I think, brings us back to a force that was opposed to God and that that intrusion is what led to what we see in these killing beasts and that uh, that's not the way it's going to be in the hereafter. And just as one other example, there's so many of these where Paul would say, let love make you serve one another. For the whole law is summed up in one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So Satan's kingdom is, I will climb to the top. I will do everything necessary, including kill you if I need to, in order to survive. God's kingdom is the opposite. I will lay down my life for you. Uh, they're, again, light and dark. They're complete polar opposites. And just as another example, survival of the fittest, we said that is not the way God designed this world. Just another example, we just see in Satan, and it's amazing when you think about it, that God spent nine months in the womb, grew up, and first thing he does, he's driven out to the desert to confront Satan. And um, Satan's a created being. And who's the creator in Genesis 1? Well, John 1 tells us that was Jesus. And what does Satan do? He says, all this will be yours then if you worship me. Now imagine a created being telling his maker, get down on your knees and worship me. Uh, it's really unbelievable. And uh, we know the angels were there because we just read on. The devil left Jesus. Angels came and helped him. I like to imagine here that you were perhaps an angel when this whole problem began. And you witnessed the rebellion. And now you watch... Satan, an angel just like you, asked God to get down on his knees and worship him. It's unthinkable. And they were there, and they came and they helped Jesus as soon as they could. So Satan's kingdom, I think uh, what Satan ultimately wants is to be worshipped as God. And uh, in Revelation, we read that it, the dragon, forced the earth and all who live on it to worship the first beast whose wound had been healed. And we could use lots of other verses to support this, but that Satan's methods are fear, force, coercion, down on your knees, and uh, demands to be worshipped. What is interesting is if we really take Jesus' claim seriously that he was none other than God in human form, is there a single example you can think of where he asked someone to worship him? Did he ever ask someone, get down on your knees? Uh, never did. Okay, worship, from God's perspective, I mean, love, 
springs love within us. God pours out his love, and that stimulates in us non-coercively worship and love and reverence for God. He doesn't point his finger, at least Jesus never did, and said, get down on your knees and worship. It would seem to be a contrast between two kingdoms. And so we have this picture here of darkness and light. And I'll just bring up a little bit of the evidence for this, again, supporting that we've got two very different kingdoms. John 1 is such a parallel to Genesis 1. In the beginning, in the beginning. And in John 1, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you take out a few words in between and just put dot, 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 it literally says that God was with God in the beginning. Okay, and who was it who created He was already with God in the beginning. Everything came into existence through Him. Not one thing that exists was made without Him. He was the source of life, and notice, and that life was the light for humanity. The light shines in the dark, and the dark has never extinguished it. This, Jesus, was the real light, the light that comes into the world and shines on all people. And the Bible really does, I think, encourage us to read into some symbolism here with the light and darkness that is included in the first few verses of Genesis. And there's so much about light. I mean, in Matthew 4, the people who live in darkness will see a great light. On those who live in the dark land of death, isn't that a good description of our earth? The dark land of death, the light will shine. John 8, Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life and will never walk in darkness. And while I am in the world, I am the light for the world. The ultimate light is seen in Jesus Christ. And finally, I have come into the world as light so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. Again, come out of that old satanic kingdom and join the kingdom of the light. And perhaps here's the strongest verse here. Paul comes right back to Genesis 1 in this passage in 2 Corinthians. He would say they do not believe because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. He keeps them from seeing the light shining on them, the light that comes from the good news about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. The God who said, out of darkness the light shall shine, and this is directly from Genesis, is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts to bring us the knowledge of God's glory shining in the face of Christ. And the word glory here does not mean that Jesus came to reveal that God is bright. Okay, He came to reveal God's character. Glory is character. And where do we see, where do we receive a knowledge of God's character? It is in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, That is the supreme light that needs to go throughout the world to um, extinguish the darkness. Okay, so last verse here. John would conclude everything. Here's the summary of everything that's important. The message that we have heard from his Son and announce is this. God is light. And there is no darkness at all in him. And so we need to have answers. All these difficult questions that people raise about God, that question about God, I think in Jesus we really see there is no darkness in God. God is light. God is love personified, forgiveness personified. Um, God is good. And so next time uh, we'll go back to the tree. And actually it would be helpful um, just to read Genesis 3. 
and try to understand what was so uh, satanic about the words that Satan said to Eve and uh, what, was, what was so bad about eating a piece of fruit. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, for each one here that uh, we will come to a better understanding of your kingdom, kingdom of the light, of goodness and love. Help us to see your kingdom through the reflection of it that we have in Jesus Christ. And also, please help us to better distinguish uh, the other kingdom, to distinguish between the two and to choose your kingdom. Amen.